0: Welcome to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi, everyone. This is Rohit from Life Self Mastery. And I'm excited to have Trina Strackman, who's a co founder and general partner of 1517 Fund. Uh, She's worked with young entrepreneurs for about a decade in 2020 during the founding of the Field Fellowship. uh, Dana joined. To lead the design and operations. She's worked with some of the most prestigious founders like Vitalik Buterin and uh, Ritesh Agarwal. Uh, pre- previous to her work with Peter Thiel, Daniel founded and directed Innovations Academy in San Diego, a K 8 charter school serving 400 students with a focus on student led project based learning and other alternative project programs. A big thank you to Elizabeth Kien from Hustle Front for the introduction. Uh, welcome to the show, Daniel.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me.
0: Awesome. So, you know, um, uh, you've been part of uh, the Thiel Fellowship and now uh, you've been in a lot of other startups. How did did that start? How did you get involved into startups?
1: You know, it's kind of a crazy story. Uh, If someone had asked me 11 years ago, would you be in VC? I would have said, what's VC? I didn't know about venture capital or the industry. I had friends who started companies or were early at startups like PayPal. Um, But I didn't, I wasn't, Inside of that group, myself, and I had been working at my charter school and and started it and was running it for the first two years. Uh, that was in San Diego, California. Uh, after the first two years of being school principal, I learned that I didn't want to be a school principal forever. Uh, Is both the best thing I've ever done, but also the most stressful. It kind of feels like you're a parent or an aunt to. As many kids as you have there, and we had uh, over 200 students. We have 400 now. I'm still on the board, so I uh, I can't get away from it, um, and I don't want to. We're we have some really massive success, and we just bought a building this year, which has been great. But I uh, I ended up moving up to the Bay Area, and I didn't really know how I was going to spend my time. Like many people who kind of do mission critical things, I was definitely burnt out uh, by the time I said, "Okay, I'm ready to," you know. Uh, sort of walk away from my school and do something new. I said, I'm going to do a staycation. Um, I was dating someone in the Bay Area at the time. And so I said, okay, I'm going to move up to the Bay from San Diego. And uh, I kind of had this um, yeah, idea that I would just take six months to decompress and see what would happen. And I'm glad I listened to my intuition on that because I got different offers from people over those six, that six-month period to run different people's programs and nonprofits and things like that. And I remember feeling really concerned because I don't have a tech background. And I thought, gosh, how am I going to be valuable in the Bay Area? Like, what's this going to look like? And I I really didn't know. But one day out of the blue, Lindy Fishburne, who worked at the T.L. Foundation, called me and her exact words were the foundation has lost their minds. They're launching this program and they need someone to run it. They're looking for somebody and you'd be perfect. You have to come interview. And. It was it was strange to me because I had run my charter school and you have to take two years to do a pilot and get the school opened and there's approval. And so I'm a real ops person. And uh, and so I had to. Be doing all that day to day stuff. And then I hear about the fellowship probably a week earlier. And then my friend Lindy calls me and tells me there's nobody running it. And I thought, who starts a program and doesn't have a pilot and doesn't have a a full team running it? And who does that? And it's like, oh, Peter does that. (laughs) Um, So I interviewed that week. And what was great about the whole thing was that I didn't want to come in to manage somebody else's dream. I didn't want to come in and say, hey, you know, Peter and Teal Foundation team, what do you all want? And I guess I'll just, you know, enact what you want. But I had a lot of vision myself and um, have a lot of different ideas about how to work with, you know, people and uh, what would make for a great program. And so I came on board the next week, started with the, with them. And, uh, you know, myself and my colleagues and the first set of Teal Fellows, when we picked them six months later, really built out the program together. So it was uh, one of the things I like to tell people is that, Um, you know, people say things like your network is your net worth. And that's really true. You know, I happened to know Lindy and she called me and she knew what I had been up to in the past. And that's how it happened. It it wasn't like they had a job posting out there. Uh, And in fact, none of the work I have ever done has been because I applied to a job posting. It's because, you know, somebody who says, oh, by the way, this group is looking for this kind of person. Um, Or for me, it's also been entrepreneurial sometimes as well.
0: No, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I think uh, you rightly pointed out your network is your, is your net worth and uh, you, you know, you've been part of uh, Thiel Fellowship and you work with Peter Thiel. Uh, what, what are some of the lessons you learned from, you know, running the fellowship and how is it working for Peter? Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I think the fellowship is still considered one of his most premier programs that he runs, if not the premier program. Um, You know, he told us that personally when we were in, I think, year two of the program, he said, you know, this is this is one of the best things that I've done because it's making a big impact. People are interested. It's getting a message out there. Um, that really needs to be heard. And that message is one that higher education is not for all. And there's an education bubble where the cost of school has been so inflated because everyone thinks you have to get a degree to be considered an educated person or to be able to go into the workforce. And, um, you know, he just didn't think that was true and also thought that school was maybe hindering progress in terms of technology uh, and, you know, hindsight is 2020, as always. And it's easy for us to look back and say, like, yeah, you know, if people like Vitalik didn't take the time out of school to start uh, building the Ethereum network, then, you know, where would things be within crypto? I'm not sure. Um, right. So it's really interesting to think about that. But that was his um, really big vision. And it was, re- it was extremely experimental. We didn't start the fellowship and say, oh, we know we can find these people and they're definitely out there and we can definitely develop them in such a way to help them start these things. We said, okay, we're going to look for people who have potential, who have an appetite for risk, who are insatiably curious and who we think could take two years to start working on something with the support of the $100,000 as well as um, us and a mentor network that we've created and also, of course, their peers. Um, So we didn't, you know, Peter had worked with young founders before, um, you know, like the Collison brothers, of course, Mark Zuckerberg as well. And so I think he had an intuition that like, hey, there's more of these people out there and there's a way to find them. Um, But we didn't have like a systematic way of thinking about it yet. And really what Peter did was uh, we call it the bat signal. Like Peter put up the bat signal of, hey, you know, if you're a young person and you're willing to take time off school and you have big ideas and here's what you want to do, come to us. And they did. Um, The first year we had 400 people apply. I know that the application pool now for the fellowship is in the tens of thousands. So it's grown a lot. In fact, we had a hard time finding people that first year where we said, okay, like where are we going to scout? What high schools are we going to visit? What colleges are we going to visit? How are we going to get the media to pay attention? And the media paid the most attention actually after we announced the fellows, not beforehand. Um, But you know, Peter really taught us a lot about um, thinking about risk, thinking about incentives, thinking about progress and technology. He's just very steeped in these things. And, you know, uh, I wouldn't say Peter is like a teacher type or he's espousing these things around the office, but you just kind of pick them up by osmosis of thinking like, Okay, yeah, what are the incentives that are driving things in the market? Okay, let's think about those things and talk about them. And you'll hear people around the office having these discussions and you just kind of pick it up as you go. So sometimes I'll tell people we've been steeped like, you know, like tea, where it's like, okay, this has been infused in us over time from working with Peter over the last 11 years. Um, and uh, yeah, just a very special opportunity. Lastly, I will say another thing that I learned from Peter is. Um, he really like people use the term first principles thinker and I think that um, it's way overused but Peter really truly is a first principles thinker and an example I like to give of this is that You know, you could ask Peter, what's your favorite color on Monday? And he'll like kind of think about it and he'll go, well, here's what's going on in the markets. Here's what's going on in these places. Okay, today it's red because of these reasons. And if you asked him the next day and said, what's your favorite color? He doesn't just spit out red. He thinks about it all over again and says like, okay, well, based on what I know today, my favorite color is blue. Um, And so I really admire that quality in him because he's one of the most thoughtful people I've ever encountered where he doesn't just have a can. answer to something and I think that's a very special trait Um, and uh, yeah that's like one of the best things that I learned working with him.
0: Right yeah no absolutely this is uh, very interesting because uh, when he when he started off the Fellowship uh, you know, I was back in India, and you know, we uh, there, there's there's yeah. a lot of noise in, in the in the market that you know maybe three fellowship wouldn't really work, but uh, but yeah. you know, you look you look at Ritesh and, uh, and Vitalik, I think they have done pretty yeah. really well. But uh, yeah. you know, I just had uh, a follow up question. Do you think yeah. younger entrepreneurs just coming out of school? Do you think they yeah. uh, they may not have the experience, and you know, sometimes they may not have well formed uh, ideas. But uh, yeah, how do you how do you how do you get the right applicants for, uh, for yeah. when you're running team your Fellowship?
1: Yep. So we made mistakes and we corrected, course corrected as we went. The first year of the fellowship, in probably the first couple of years, we were emulating college applications way too much, essays, SAT scores, stuff like that. Um, that said, the first batch of fellows, we got some really amazing outliers from that from that group. And so something was working there, but we started tweaking it over time and really iterating on the program. And uh, I think by the third year, we had gotten rid of the SAT requirements. I think we had shortened up a lot of our sort of written application stuff. And what we were really looking for was progress over time. Um, so one of the things that we had on there was a, a question about what are you going to do in the next uh, I think it was something like, like, what do you want to do in the next 10 years, the next two years and the next two months? And it was a little bit of a gotcha because if people made it through the applicant cycle, which took it took us, I think, about three to four months to get to the final restaurant and really whittle these folks down, we would come back and say, hey, what'd you do over the last two months? And we'd be looking at, okay, not necessarily did you meet the goal you set? Because as we all know, things go off the rails, things change. But what we were looking for was, did they strive towards it? Did they learn from doing it? Did they approach that thing? Did they say something in their answer like, yeah, no, I really need to course correct. So now my goals are X, you know, to still get to that 10-year vision. Um, So we were really looking at their action and what they were doing and what they were executing on. I think with the first group of fellows, a lot of what we were looking for was very big vision. Um, And sometimes I'll say like, you can find people with really big vision, but when you ask them what they're doing on Friday, they have no idea. They're like, I don't, I wouldn't even know where to get started on this. But then there's people who are great executors and makers, but they don't have the big vision. And we're really looking for the combo of those people. And so we would look for people who had, big ideas like Ritesh, but also had the hustle and the grit um, to really get started. I still remember being on a Skype call with Ritesh and he was like fluffing pillows in the background because it was starting off as like an Airbnb clone and he was staying at a place and he needed it to look nice. And it's like, that's what you got to do to get started. And and people would sometimes come to us and say like, oh yeah, I want to do an Airbnb clone. And you say, okay, cool. Well, what are you doing on Friday? And they're like... I've got nothing, so it, it was really this combo of looking for um, execution as well as big vision.
0: Right, and uh, you know, interestingly, you pointed out Ritesh. Uh, I had the privilege to work for uh, Ritesh and as an mm-hmm. early employer to open your rooms, uh, and especially in you know a country like like India, you know. Uh, the, uh, the culture is different, you know. It's not very individual focus, very uh, you know family focus. You you focus on your studies, and well, what he what he did is something uh, very different. He dropped out, and was yep. a very uh, he he started off. Uh, uh, you know, the Thiel Fellowship, he was able to raise funding, but uh, but what did you find about Ritesh and Oyeron that you know Thiel Fellowship back to him?
1: You know, I think I think what we liked about Ritesh was. Um, it was definitely this big vision of like, Hey, the Indian market, uh, you know, at least that's where he was focused at the time was being sort of left out on the Airbnb side. And in fact, it wasn't even that, it was that he had these novel insights of here's why people are going to get it wrong here. Like, you know, you can't just take the same playbook you use in the U S and do it here. And so he had some novel insights on that, but a lot of it was really that execution piece. I mean, when there, there's a lot of things where I like to talk about um, and I haven't talked about this very much, but sort of founder tells it's like in poker, you're looking for these signs of things. And actually a good poker player will tell you they're not looking for those tells there's, they're doing all the math, um, sure. which is also true. Um, but I do think the tells are important and it's the little things like, oh yeah, we were getting on a call and he's in the background and he's fluffing the pillows and he's doing the really hard work. It's like, he's not, um, I guess it's it's almost like you want to catch people doing good when they think no one is watching, um, and I feel like that was very true of Ritesh, where he was just constantly working hard at something, and he he wasn't. You know, sometimes you get founders who are really insecure, and they're constantly coming to programs or to their investors, and they're like, "Look what I did! I did an amazing thing!" And you're like, "Okay, well, are you talking to customers?" And they're like, "Oh, not yet." And it's like, "Okay, I'm glad you did that amazing thing. Start talking to customers." Like Ritesh just knew okay, here's where I need to get started. Um, and he knew how to sort of showcase that execution that he was building. And then he was extremely coachable, uh, which I think was, uh, it's a rare quality. Like, you know, founder types, you know, often have like a, a lot of know-how, sometimes a lot of ego. Uh, and uh, But he was very open to like feedback and learning and saying, okay, what do I need to do to grow this and have it become... Um, something bigger than even I can conceive of right now. And, and so it was just a bunch of different qualities that, that we looked at. It was very enjoyable to work with him over the fellowship as well.
0: Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan. Uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Oh, absolutely. I think he's also, also a great listener and, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, working with him. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, from team from fellowship, you know, you looked at uh, 1517 fund, uh, you know, uh, who are you serving in 1517 fund or is it a, uh is it a follow-up on the Fellowship? it is
1: it is we consider ourselves a fellowship 2.0 and so with the fellowship we could give someone a grant and help them get started on the D side of what they were doing but when it came time for them to raise money um you know we could introduce them to investors but we couldn't invest in them or if someone is doing great we couldn't say oh you get you know the second teal fellowship you only get one um and so what we really saw was Excuse me, the possibility to keep working with people over the long haul um, and to keep backing them financially over time. So when I'm backing a founder, we do predominantly back people who don't have a B.A. or a B.S. Uh, I say 90 percent of our founders fit that dropout thesis. Um, you know, we'll, we'll start them. Sometimes with a 50K fifty k checked on the R&D side, if they're past an R&D stage and they're more like a software company, a 250K check, usually when they're raising about a million to 1.5. Um, and then we can keep doubling down on them over time and really working with them over, you know, a 10-year cycle of a, of a company. And we just weren't able to do that with the fellowship. Like we could keep our personal relationships with fellows, but I couldn't keep coming in with more resources. And, you know, mentorship is great and all, but cash is king. And that's what, you know, sometimes you need, you know, gasoline in the tank. Like you can't, you can't run on fumes forever. Um, so it's it's great to have set something up where we can work with people over a long period of time, and we can work with a lot more people than we could with the fellowship. The fellowship is incredible. It still runs. We make recommendations over there. I text with Allison, the, the, uh, the director, all the time about like, hey, what's going on? How, how are things going? Here's a person you should talk to and so on. She does the same for me. Um, but with 1517, you know, we can make an investment in a new company multiple times a month we have a grant program we run as well. Sometimes we'll kick a young person a thousand dollars to just help them get started on something. That's a Venmo payment, um, and uh, and it just it's broader what we're able to do. And then the lifetime is much longer. Yeah,
0: interesting. And you know what's behind the name fifteen seventeen? Is it for people who in that. No,
1: it's funny. I had never thought of that at first, but yeah, we've gotten asked that a lot. Like, do you only back 15 to 17 year olds? And no, (laughs) that's not true. Although uh, two of our best companies, we met the founders. I met the founder of uh, Luminar when he was 17, and I met one of the founders of Loom when he was 15. Um, so, But that's not where the name comes from. The, uh, the name is the year 1517. It's historic. Uh, it's the year of the Protestant Reformation. And what was basically happening then um, was Martin Luther went to the church and said, hey... I think this is egregious that you're telling people you can only enter the kingdom of God if you pay for this piece of paper. Um, And and in addition, people at the time, there was a technological change with the printing press. It, It was more, uh, more like mass adoption, if you will, like for the time period. And so then people could have their own Bibles and things like that. Now, at 1517, we're not particularly like religious as a fund, but the parallel that we like is that now today, yeah, there's another big institution, higher education that says you can't be uh, you know, called an educated person, unless you have this thing called a diploma and to get this diploma, you have to pay a lot of money for it. And we're like, we just think the whole thing is corrupt. And so that is the throwback or the callback to, uh, to the year 1517. And it was actually, it was very fun. And, uh, in 2017, it was 1517's 500th you know uh, anniversary. So we had a big party. 400 people came from all over the world. We had young people there, a lot of dropouts, a lot of different presentations. Uh, and you know, I look forward to being able to uh, you know celebrate more birthdays in the future. But it's only once that you get to have your uh, quincentennial, So we we big on that one.
0: Thanks. Hey. Oh, I think I think that's a that's a very interesting uh, story, and uh, yeah. because, you know uh, the the name of the podcast is Life and Mastery, and you know, uh, it's about you know mastering life and, and the value system. Yep. But when, when you looked at building 17 fund, uh, well, did, did you look at you know what what value systems did you did you look at when you know yep. you wanted to build a fund, and do you think it's yeah it's, it makes sense to think about the values at such yep. early stage?
1: That's a great question, and. um, One thing I think that sort of makes us special as well as other pre-seed funds is that a lot of us are coming from not the investment side of things. Like We're not coming from other firms saying, hey, I want to start a pre-seed fund. It's actually quite difficult to run a pre-seed fund because financially it's hard to keep everything afloat because you have smaller dollars at play. And um, so you often have kind of weirdos who are running these pre-seed funds where it's like, you know, and by weirdos, it might be like, okay, entrepreneurs who are like, okay, I'm going to start something. Um, myself and my colleague, you know, I have an education background. My colleague has a background in philosophy. Um, so it's people who are doing something because they have a mission to do it. And so I don't think like when we started 1517, we did do an exercise um, that is a, uh, gosh, what's that book? Uh, I'm looking at this book on the corner. The, uh, oh man. I wish I had it right here. We'll get to, Oh, actually it's right here. Um, I know we'll, we'll like gel into this later, but, uh, Ari uh, Vinesfeg, uh writes these great business books. Uh, he runs a company called Zingerman's and uh, it's a, it's a place in Ann Arbor, but they also have a, it's a cafe there, but they have a whole food distribution network that they've started. And Ari is a great guy, but he has this great exercise in the book where you write about the future as if it's already happened. And so we did this exercise for 1517, where we said, Hey, I can't remember if it was five years or more, but it's like right five years in the future. What's going on now? And we did that exercise, um, and uh, and sort of like different different uh, characteristics of where we wanted to go started falling out of that. But some some of the things um, that we really value and are our values in the portfolio are things like inclusivity, being accessible. You know, a lot of VCs uh, in the past used to say things like, "Well, you've got to get a warm intro," like you know, part of the gated experience is being able to just get your way in here. And that's how we want it to be. And we're like, whoa, no. Like if, like if you're 18, 20, 25 years old, you don't have a network. You don't have, you're not friends with Reed Hoffman and you 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 just keep bouncing around. Um, You have to build a network. Um, So I always think it's silly when people have these like arbitrary gate. So it's like our contact form, um, three of the four of us on the team read every single contact form. So like nobody is is ever missed. We don't necessarily get back to every single contact form, but we all look at it and say, okay, like, should we take some time here? Um, you know, people tweet at me all the time and I get back to them and say, hey, let's set up a call. So accessibility uh, and welcomingness is very important to us. Uh, I'm a really big community builder. So we're always thinking about how do we get our uh, community collaborating with each other. I think my sort of educator ethos comes out a lot in the fund in terms of we're just kind of thinking about how do people learn and grow a lot in 1517. It's like we start with a team that has a name and then they become a company. Like with Loom, they started as. A team of three, and they were called Open Test, and they developed it over time. They've become Loom, and everybody knows what Loom is today. Um, and and so it's really incredible to to see that. But where it started was, you know, just you know three people who needed to grow their leadership ability, um, you know, and needed the support to do that. So I guess those are those are some of the areas. I would also say like. I guess quirkiness and weirdness is definitely a, um, value of ours. We, we were on a call with our team recently and my colleague, Nick said like, yeah, we've really got to embrace like our weird more often. And so like little things like, you know, none of my cats are around today, but like I've stopped caring about cats being in, in the, you know, it, it within the frame or, um, you know, sometimes uh, we'll be on a pitch call, Nick's cat will be in his lap or he's a space geek. So like, we'll end up having these random topic conversations about things. So we just kind of think about like everybody trying to embrace who they are as much as they can, not just in our fund, but in our whole community um, and letting that be a positive instead of something you have to like hide and be like, Oh, like, you know, don't geek out on this thing you're really interested in because other people aren't going to like it. Like I, I, I like to say we like to collect social geeks, so people who like to go really deep on a topic but love to share it with others. Um, so I think I'll pause there on that question. But those are some of the, the attributes of the fund.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think it's very interesting you said that. You know, uh, that you embrace the uh, weirdness and quirkyness. I think I wish more more companies uh, had that in the value system. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's makes, a, i mean it's really
1: more fun for it, for us
0: yeah. right yeah no absolutely uh, and uh, uh you yeah, know i was part of the on uh, podcast uh, fellowship and yeah uh, I, th- I think uh, on is a, is a very interesting uh, fellowship uh, hmm. where Eric Tornberg, the founder does does believe that you know uh that there could be an unbundling of the education and the university but but do you do you think uh, universities, especially like the Oxfords and the Cambridge and the Harvard and Stanford's, won't won't be there in the next uh, couple of no, years. No. They're, or they're always
1: they, their endowment is too large to let go. Of. There's, <laughs> they're a financial institution. That's what they are. Um, so they're not going anywhere. Um, you know, they're a hedge fund that says they educate people, um, and, and that's what they do. Um, so no, I don't think. I, schools with large endowments are not going anywhere anytime fast. Um, but I do think that they're going to have to change a lot. And I, I've been honestly really shocked at how little things have changed, even through a pandemic. Um, you know, Harvard put out last year that tuition was going to stay the same. I lost my mind. I was like, are you kidding? You're going to say it's still the same. And, you you know, it's, it's one of those things where, to me, um, you know, Gen Z is really savvy. And actually I'm, I'm like even more terrified of, of Gen Alpha because I think they're going to be even more uh, savvy than Gen Z. Those are like the younger siblings of the Gen Zers. And uh, I think they get it that it's a racket. I think they totally understand that what you're paying for is like, you know, the Stanford sweatshirt. I've often wondered about if someone just bought Stanford swag and didn't go to Stanford, would they get the benefit because people just you know, they look for signal. It's like, oh, you got Stanford sweatshirt. You must have gone to Stanford. Um, So, I think people understand that even getting in and not going sends as positive a signal as actually going to the school at this point. Um, So, I think they are going to have to change some things in terms of uh, actually having students leave with relevant skills. I'm hearing more and more often about students leaving even the most prestigious schools and then doing a boot camp. I'm like, what you like? I'm, I, and I've, this is not uncommon. I hear all the time about students, you know, basically learning like theoretical CS, never writing a line of code and then having to go out into the work world. And they're like, I can't do this. I mean, that would be like, yeah, I used to be a musician. That would be like me learning music theory and never sitting down at the piano. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. So I think some changes are coming, but I, I think the really big schools, like they have enough capital that they can keep going. Um, they can keep selling their really expensive handbags and, and some people are going to want to go where I think it's really interesting is, you know, there's a lot of for-profit schools and stuff like that, that say you're going to get these benefits out of it and then never deliver. I think those places are going under and I think that's great. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, the big schools I think are going to be around for a long time. But lastly, I will say, um, If they were really, really interested in educating people, they would scale what they do. And so it's really clear their incentives, like going back to what I learned from Peter, their incentives are really clear to me that it is, you know, the expensive golf club. Like that is is what they're up to. They are not interested in educating the masses and having everyone be as smart as a Harvard student, like which really like that's just there's something really evil about that, like especially as having been a teacher. If you would say, you know what, I'm going to deny this type of opportunity for people, even though we have the funds to scale it, like there's just something really cringeworthy about that.
0: Right. No, uh, I think uh, they do give a signal, but as you rightly pointed out, that you know, uh, the students are not upskilled. But, uh, it happens in no. universities in India as well, um, yep. um, you know, where they, they you, you learn more on the job than on, on your own business. Uh, yep. But do but, but you well, think they have... Seems-
1: I was just going to say, I'm seeing this more and more. Like, we have a company called Simba, and Simba is all about upskilling the workforce within the company itself, whether it's through uh, workforce development or internships. And I've said for about a decade now, I think where things really start to break down is when when the working world has their own form of assessment on the job. It's like, hey, take these courses. Okay, now do this assessment. Okay, now we know that you're a great hire for Ernst & Young or something like that. And actually in fact, Google and Ernst & Young have both dropped their uh, degree requirement. I'm sure they still look at it plenty but they don't make it required anymore. Um, So I think it's gonna be really about... um, employers thinking about hey we we have to educate our workforce anyways because no one stays in any position for more than like two years at this point if you do you're a dinosaur you're not you know you're not like really on the edge of your capabilities um yeah. so I, I think this is all all coming um and i'm very curious to see like what happens in the next five years on that
0: to have an interesting stat for you to you denote know that the founder of beautiful lives Increase the social media presence by 10x. They manage to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemaster.com/slash-social-pilot to get a 14-day free trial. You know, just to follow up on that, do you think you know? have that unfair advantage as non-profits because you know a lot of times they oh yeah.
1: No, it is like the tax benefits and stuff yes. like that. It's yeah. nuts. It's totally insane. Um, yeah, no, it it's highway robbery. It is total highway robbery. Um, and, and then there's like some disastrous stuff too. When you look at the sports leagues and things like that, it's like, oh, the coach is paid the most, you know, on the entire campus. And, you know, there's X number of concussions a year. And oh, by the way, they're not paid to go run around on that field. Like it, it's uh it's barbaric. Like it, it's really truly troubling. Um, you know, I think a lot of the U.S. is built off of the suffering of 18-year-olds. Whether that's going to school, um, being in sports and making a lot of money for those institutions, going to the military. I think it's really barbaric that you know we send young people off, you know, to to go fight. Even basic training. I was talking to someone the other day about that basic training alone. Um, can truly traumatize people like on a PTSD level yet we send 18 year olds without even thinking about it. And we're like, Oh, it's so great. They're serving their country. It's like, well, is their country serving them? Like, no, we're just thinking about like these people have brains and bronze and yeah, they can put themselves through a lot between the ages of 18 and 22 um, at a large cost to them that nobody talks about.
0: Right. and and uh you know I've been I've been fascinated by by what Y Combinator lambda school and on the campaign have been creating but do you think uh, doing something like IACs, uh, in in universities and other education companies can bring you know align more incentives with the education system
1: uh, I think it's possible but I think school tends to like, make things too academic. You know, you see um, entrepreneurship groups starting on campuses or like a teacher teaching, um, you know, entrepreneurship basics, but they don't have that much experience in the field. And so there are programs I really like, like, so for example, the University of Waterloo um, uh, outside of Toronto, just not everyone knows where Waterloo is, but um, they do a fantastic job of one semester is learning, one semester is co-op, one semester is learning, one semester is co-op. So I like, as far as I understand it, they don't even have like summer break or anything like that because the students are just going back and forth a lot. But what I love about what they're doing is that, you know, you get to study something and then you get to be in the field of something. And so then if you find out, you know what, I really don't like to code or you know what, I'm not really enjoying being a designer, you learn that before you finish school and you have a resume on top of it. And I wish more US institutions would follow that model. So I think there can be things, um, you know, that that work. Um, but there aren't that many incentives for schools to actually report on, Hey, here's how many of our students get a job. Here's how many of our students get a job in the field that they actually finished school in. Um, so there isn't, there isn't enough pressure on them to actually make a change. It's like, you know, um, you hear these terrible stories of like, Oh, the students petition to get a pool or like, whatever it is, it's like, You know, uh, we've sometimes said we want to do like a a protest on a major campus, like do a march or something like that um, to really help students to see like you should be petitioning to actually leave here with real skills. You should be petitioning for them not to uh, increase tuition again every (laughs) single year. Like, Like that's what blows my mind is these institutions have large bodies of students on them. And, you know, I'm right next to Berkeley uh, in Oakland and Berkeley is notorious for being like progressive and we march and we protest and we do this. And I'm like, why aren't Berkeley students storming the campus being like, yo, here's what's wrong right here. Um, And I'm just surprised it doesn't happen more often, like on that, like, you know.
0: And interesting. So, so what you're suggesting is more, more personalized training and also boot camps, uh, especially boot camps,
1: those. personalized training, really unbundling. I think the um, I mean, there's so much that's happening on a campus between housing, between activities, the actual learning the network of the people that you get, and all these things. Different groups are unbundling. Like it, it was great. I I did a uh, interview with the On Deck Fellows, yeah. uh, who are doing more like startup oriented stuff, and it was a great cohort of people. And they're just working together. And uh, you know, they they didn't have to pay the Stanford amount to do that. So so I think there are a lot of different changes that that are coming because these other groups exist now and there are other options. And also just the notion of taking time off or taking a gap year is way more normalized now after 11 years. 11 years ago, if you said like, you know, hey, you could take like, you know, uh, a gap year to learn to do something instead of to go to Europe, people thought you were crazy. And now it's it's extremely normal.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. very interesting. And uh, uh, you know, I work in an tech company, and i have usually seen that you know a uh, uh, lot of edtech products, uh, which are for for K twelve students. You we would think the decision maker would be the would be student or the child, but it's usually the parents. Uh, but you know, how how do students look at having conversations with their parents or not going to college? Uh, you know, especially the generation Alpha.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a great question. Uh, I was just talking to a 16 year old the other day, uh, who I met who had his first company exit that I was like, wow, baller. Like, that's amazing. And uh, he's already homeschooled. He's he's doing his education in a different way. And I asked him, I said, you know, are your parents like entrepreneurial or like, what do they do? And it turns out his parents are entrepreneurial, um, and, and, but not in the same way. I think they were more on things like real estate, but they kind of understood like there's other things going on besides school. And so over time, um, he's gotten sort of more freedom and flexibility. And I, I know a young woman who uh is in a great high school called Sora School, uh, which is an online high school. I know the founders of that program. If Garrett, if you're listening, hello. Um, but um she was in, I think, upstate New York somewhere, and she got into this online school. She hated the school that she was going to. Uh And she said to her parents, "Like uh, what she did that I think is so great, and I I would actually like to do an interview with her sometime. She's 17. She said, I didn't ask my parents for anything too big to start. I didn't say, can I go move to San Francisco and live in a co-housing house and do online school? She would say things to them like, hey, you know what? There's this event on Saturday I really want to go to, and it might have to be like a, a workshop or something that's extracurricular. Then it was like, Hey, can I, you know, is it okay if I have my own Twitter account and I start sort of interacting with different people. And then eventually it was like, Hey, can I do this online school program and try it out and try it for semester? And if it works, we keep doing it. And if it doesn't, then I go back to my old school. And then she made the big leap and asked her parents if she could move to a house in Menlo park with a bunch of other young people, which is outside San Francisco. And her parents said, yes. Um, you know, and, uh, not to stereotype her too much, but her parents are Indian and this is oh, not yes. common. This, you know, this, this is not a white kid doing this. Um, so it's very interesting to see that. I love her approach of, um, you know, sometimes people might call this breadcrumbing, which is actually not a positive term, but it's like, okay, just ask for the little thing and keep making the breadcrumb a little bit bigger over time. And then you might get the things that you want. And so whenever I mentor teenagers, I talk to them about don't go to your parents saying, I want to drop out. Like that will freak them out. You go to them and you say, you know what? I'd re- on the weekends, I'd really love to start doing X. Or you say, hey, you know what? I'd really like to take a semester off of what I'm doing. And here's what I want to do instead. And here's how we would measure that I'm doing a good job with it. Um, So it's all about just being proactive and planning. And if you have any teenagers listening, I'm always happy to talk to you about uh, sort of life advice in this realm, like how to get your parents on board um, with doing something different.
0: Yeah, no, I think these are, these are excellent examples, especially for teenagers, you know, who want to do something different and, you know, speak to their parents about it. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. Thank you so much for talking about it. And, yeah, uh, of you, course. Yeah, and, and you talked about homeschooling and, yep. uh, you know, uh, I think last year, uh, COVID had, uh, 2020 had been an inflection point, where a lot of students had to, you know, uh, oh, study yeah. remotely. And, yep. uh, and, but do you think homeschooling can be a viable option uh, going forward where, you know, they could be small uh, home boards where you know teachers give yep. okay, personalized training, or, or do you think mm-hmm. students need to be in uh, environment with a lot of other children? Or, you or
1: know, sometimes know. I guess the thing that I would think about is that I think um, it's a bit of a misnomer that homeschooling means that you're isolated and you're just doing things with your parents. Like today, you know, I tend to use the term independent learning a lot actually now, um, and the difference is that. You're learning from all kinds of people and all kinds of experiences. It's like this young woman, you know, is probably going to go find an internship somewhere at some point that we talked about. Um, You know, she's learning through her online school. She's learning through the peers of the people that she's living with in the house. And so and this young man I talked to the other day, who's 16, uh, who is homeschooling it's just all this piecemeal stuff of like, okay, I'm like doing this project and I have my online school and I think online school is helpful. Um, but you know, I think social in-person time is important. Um, and, uh, and cross peer group and cross age. I mean, the homeschoolers, I know it's funny. You always hear about people talking about how, Oh, the teenagers, it's terrible. The homeschoolers don't have the same issues with that because like, think about it. You put a bunch of like 15 year olds in the same room and they're all developmentally at the same place and hormonally at the same place. That sounds like a recipe for disaster, but we do it all day. Um, you know, but if you put people in multi-age groups and you have people who, you know, you can look up to and whatnot, it does take, it does take having the right systems in place and it's hard to do it. And it does take more work, but I think it is so much easier than even 15 years ago, when I first started working with homeschoolers, like if you were a homeschooler 15 years ago, it was renegade. Like you were off the reservation, you were doing weird things. Maybe your kid wasn't cutting it in school. Um, you know, your kid may have been labeled like a bad kid or something like that, or maybe you were super religious and that's why you were doing it. And like now it's, it's all kinds of different people doing it and there's many different systems. So I do think it's more scalable, especially with these online components. Um, And I think it's just going to keep getting that way over time. And I think the pandemic taught a lot of parents, like I am capable of working, you know, with my child or setting up a system that works. Uh, And in fact, a 16 year old I was talking to, he was saying, he's like, yeah, actually my parents are at a real estate conference in Vegas right now. So I'm just doing my thing at home. And like most Typical traditional parents would say, like, oh, I can't believe you left a 16-year-old at home. How irresponsible or something like that. But I think an ethos within independent learning circles and homeschooling circles is actually that children are very capable uh, and, and can handle, you know, being at home for a weekend, you know, and if it, you know, something crazy happens, you call the neighbor or you call your parents and say, oh, kitchen's on fire. <laughs> like, what, what do I do? But also a very unlikely scenario.
0: Okay. You know, I think I think it's, it's interesting, and you know I think uh, going forward we'll, we'll see uh, what of this home, homeschooling could uh, happen. And yeah, uh, you know I quickly wanted to do the top three. What's your favorite business book?
1: Yeah. um, I have a couple favorite business books. One of them is, uh, you know, probably one you hear about all the time. I love the hard thing about hard things. I was so resistant to reading it the first time because I hated the title. I was like, oh, this book. Just seems terrible, um, but then I read it and I was like, "Oh, the substance in here is really good." Um, I also recommend any of the Zingerman books. Um, you can see how like well loved this is. This this particular one is called "A Lapsed Anarchist Approach to Building a Great Business." So the thing that's so interesting about the founder uh, of this of this group uh, of the Zingerman group is that Ari was he's like he's an older, older gentleman at this point and he is an old school anarchist and he used to write the like the zines that people would write and stuff like that. And so he thought when he started his business, he could just tell people, yeah, you know, just do the things that need to be done and we're all going to be self-motivated and independent. And then he realized that that does not work. And so then he had to figure out what structures can I put in my place for my business for it to run, but people to have freedom and autonomy within that structure? And, and Zingerman's runs like a well-oiled ship. Um, the employees at least appear very happy um and uh, it's just very interesting how they do things and this is just one of his books he has a whole it, ari is such an amazing businessman that he also has like a franchise of his books where there's like volumes of the books that he's written so this is not the only one so i would uh i would recommend checking this out building a great business is what it's called no,
0: absolutely we're going to put that in the show notes uh, uh yeah, about hot yeah. things about hot things and and this one i'm yeah. I definitely yeah. going to read this one up uh,
1: yeah he's he's really great i think you'll really enjoy it he's he's a lot of fun he uses lots of case studies oh interesting
0: yeah i think uh, I'm, I'm gonna buy this book uh, and, and
1: oh, yeah and let me know it. what you think after you read it because i think i think ari is like an undiscovered treasure like i think people in startup land don't know who he is because he's yeah. he wouldn't be considered a startup founder by most startup founders but i think he totally fits the bill and Sure, if he heard me say this, he'd be like, No, I am a startup founder. Here's all the reasons why, and here's the money I've made. I'd be like, You're right, Art, you're right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Got it. And yeah, you know, if you could go back in time, we started uh, 1570 fund. Uh, what is the one thing you were focused on or done differently?
1: One thing that I learned about that I didn't realize with the fund was that your your relationships with your investors as a fund are as important as your relationships with your founders. I thought when I was starting a fund that I was like, okay, I go out, I raise money, I use that money, and I put it into my founders, and then I focus on my founders the entire time. Um, that's not how it works. Uh, There's a lot, you know, those investors are called uh, limited partners, LPs. And so there's a ton in the LP relations space of like, hey, you're getting together with people, you're keeping them updated, you know, realizing things like, your investor who is older and maybe is a phone person should get a phone call instead of an email update. Like little things like that matter, and I don't think I thought about that very much until we raised our second fund, and uh, and was like, oh, okay, people need more contact. It's not just about showing them the numbers of like, hey, here's how we're doing, here's where the return profile is going. It really is that personal touch too that's important. And so that's been a, a huge learning on the fund side that it's not just about working with founders, it's about working with your investors too. And I think that's true for founders also is uh, something we always say is um, you know, keeping a relationship with 15,17 is really important. Because what we, we don't want to feel parental. We don't want to only hear from founders when they need money. And I was making the same mistake of like, oh, I'll just hit up my LPs like when it's time for fun, too. And it's like, okay, that's not how it works.
0: <laughs> hey. No, I think uh, the, uh, this is interesting because I always thought you'd got to focus on the on the on the founders and make sure they do well and that's all and that
1: know. should be it should be like 80 85 percent of your time should be on your portfolio for sure i I just thought it was supposed to be 98 percent of the time mm-hmm.
0: got it. and and, and what, what's your favorite online tools example gmail slack zoom so.
1: oh gosh uh, I'm an email f- fool. Like I used to tell people I like checking my Gmail because I get like a dopamine hit from it. Although I don't so much anymore because I get so many spam messages. But, um, but yeah, I, I'm a big emailer. Um, I like Twitter a lot for communicating with people. I hate Slack. I hate it. I'm like vehemently against it. I, you can't get me to use it. Um, and, and for 1517, we need to figure out like our community is on facebook right now but we we realize facebook is on the way out and we're just the old people on facebook at this point and so we're like okay we need to either get on discord or discourse or something and try a new system so looking forward to that but yeah i am uh i'm a huge emailer
0: correct no Put that in the show notes uh, uh do you know what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about 1517.5
1: Sure, absolutely. I would recommend that they go to our website, 1517fund.com. Um, they, there's a form there where we ask lots of questions to find out more about you. People can also email me. It's danielle at 1517fund.com. Although if you email me, I might say, go fill out that form because it has all the questions in it that I need to know. Um, you know, come see me on Twitter, dstrackman. Um, I, I tell people I'm nicer in person than on Twitter. Twitter is my vent machine. It's where I like to complain about things. <laughs> and those tweets seem to do shockingly way better than my nice ones. So, <laughs> so that, that's what I do on there. But, um, but yeah, I love to hear from people, especially people who are teens, people who are in college, people who are dropouts. Um, and uh, yeah, say hello. Got to
0: put that in the show notes. thank you so much for taking your time speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation
1: with you. Yeah, no, this has been super fun.